Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 Before we go back to the poem, I want to do a little aside about the idea that life might be perceived as temptation because this idea has been so badly treated by by the moralists and the Puritans, so to speak, uh, using that word generically, that we tend to throw out that idea as no longer relevant, the idea that, that we must think about temptations. But certainly that's part of Dante's cosmos and, and Eliot's. The way they deal with it is quite different from the way it's dealt with in, in the... I'm using the word Puritan here as a kind of a generic reference quite different than the way it's dealt with by the, in the Puritan context. So I'd like to just massage it a little bit, and this is simply a construct for thinking about these things. See, most people think conversion means you, you get to some place and you ascent to a creed or something, and that takes care of that. So you're in, see? But the tradition, the wiser tradition, certainly the tradition that, that Eliot is, uh, knows about, understands that conversion is the beginning of the of the transformation process that is lifelong. And what it recognizes is that uh, by the time we get to be adults, we have uh, had, depending on the cultural env- specifics of the cultural environment, we have had bred into us, uh, we, have ha- we have had our identity shaped by all of the forces of our cultural environment. And most of the time, those forces incline us towards uh, self-regarding activity. The ego is appropriately, in the first instance, brought into play, and our lives are essentially self-reference. And so our impulses are to meet the life experience with self-reference. What's it going to do for me? What am I going to make out of this? How can I do... And that's just part of our psychological instincts. That's the way it is. Allow me to call that way of being lustful in this way. Lust defined as a self-regard in terms of which I define the world as objects which I can manipulate for my own satisfaction. That's what lust is. Not, see, not just sexual lust, but the, the, a larger sense of what lust is. Lust is seeing the world as a cluster of objects which I can manipulate or arrange so as to satisfy my needs and wants. The end result of a lustful life is a hell in which one lives in a world filled with objects. The world is objectified. Lust objectifies the world, turns beings into things to be manipulated. The other impulse, the impulse which the religious tradition awakens and tries to tutor uh, and, and sustain and nurture is the impulse to love. And we have to break down self-reference. We have to overcome those other impulses. We have to somehow get beyond them. Which means somewhere in the middle of this struggle, a life experience comes along. And what it means is that that life experience awakens in me two sets of sensibilities. One set that I know only too well has become very much second nature to me, and the other one that is much more embryonic, 
one of them says, gimme, gimme. And the other one has heard the rumor that you have to lose your life in order to find it. And meanwhile, life experience is coming along. Understanding life as temptation is simply understanding that, that that's the economy of the situation. And that this, the gimme gimme one, is going to jump in there and grab that thing. And in some way, it has to be calmed down, and this other one has to be given some access to that situation. So, just to complete the little, um, the, the little uh, thought pattern here for a second. If the end result of a lustful life is a world of objects, the end result of a loving life is a world of angels. Angels come from the word angelos, which means messenger. And uh, if I come to regard life experience, if I come to understand that God is love, love is the, is the stuff of life, not only am I not turning beings into objects, I'm beginning to appreciate the beingness of that which I might have otherwise considered as objective. Everything is potentially bearing a message to me. Everything is a potential bearer of a message. Here's a version of that we can think of. When a person falls in love, and then they go to Safeway to buy cereal, and they walk down the cereal aisle at Safeway, it's the same cereal aisle. Nothing has changed except their experience of walking down the cereal aisle has changed. You see what I mean? It's a different experience. Not because there's anything happening in the cereal aisle, but because of a different experience. Well, that's just a tangible version of what it's like. So I'm just saying, the world of love or the world of lust, why don't we adopt those? Because it'll help us understand where Elliot's going. To go back to Eliot's term, I renounce the face, I renounce the voice. I renounce the blessed face, I renounce the voice. The nuncio is, a, is also a messenger. So the, the nuncio comes with a message. And the message is, how are you going to get those bills paid? Or the message is, uh, uh, the sale goes off on Friday night, you better get over there. You say, or whatever it is. That's a message. And sometimes, for the sake of that little embryonic thing that has heard the rumor that you have to lose your life in order to find it, for the sake of that, you have to renounce that message. You have to renounce, send that messenger back. In order to await, and this is, plays right into Eliot's later poetry, in order to await the Annunciation. See, the Annunciation comes from the angel, Gabriel. His message is, Christ is going to be born in you. Now there's an angelic message for you. See? So, an act of renunciation in order to clear away a place where one can await and hear when it comes the annunciation. So both of these are just ways of understanding life as a, as a kind of testing of which of these we're going to rely on. How we're going to respond when these uh, when these things come to us? If you'll uh, indulge me, I would like to read uh, uh, four little tersets of a uh, longer poem that I wrote a number of years ago. It's called "Pitch Pipe in the Storm." This was this was written when I was I was receiving the benefits of Dante's work and uh, was greatly moved by it. And this, in, in a way, is a is a little gratitude to Dante. 
um, because he saved me from, in a way from the modern world a little bit, or at least that's how I perceived it. So I wrote this in Tercerima, which is his his rhyme scheme. You'll realize immediately that you can't write poems uh, in English in Tercerima. I didn't realize it at the time. But anyway, uh, I, I want to read it because I think, for me, I, I was reminded of it when I was thinking about these things. I found a seashell, barnacled and old, and put it to my ear at first amused by the tales of storms on inner seas it told. Yet it was but the chamber life once used, so I found a shell with its sea slug still alive, its narrow phylum's living air. It oozed inward in an effort to survive, too much at stake on present life to roar. So I threw it at the surge and let it thrive to gulp and gurgle plankton as before. Then took the lifeless shell again in hand and listened as I walked along the shore. What I liked about that image was the idea that the, the little gimme-gimme is still inside that thing. And as long as the little gimme-gimme is still inside that thing, you can't get the sound of the sea from it. So, so the choice to put aside the one with that, that still has that thing inside in order to hear this one that may seem dead, but really puts us in touch with the bigger universe. At the first turning of the second stair, it comes as a shock. Hey, we're on a stairway. Didn't even realize it. Now, this is something that happened. I'm on the purgatorial climb, and I didn't even realize it until I got to the second stair. The first stair was just a pain in the ass. I just thought it was a pain in the ass. You know, it turns out it was the first stair of the purgatorial climb. At the first turning of the second stair, I turned and saw below the same shape twisted on the banister under the vapor in the fetid air, struggling with the devil of the stair, who wears the deceitful face of hope and of despair. And this is absolutely brilliant. You see, down there on the stair below is the same shape, namely the voice of the poem, or Eliot, or you, or me. And it's down there doing what it always does on the first stair, struggling with the devil of the stair, the deceitful voice of hope and of despair. And it's struggling with that. See, the devil of the stair is there. You see, you come to go up the purgatorial climb, and over in the corner is lurking the devil of the stair. And he says, oh, hello. Hello. You came. You finally, you, you've, you're finally desperate enough to come here. Well, before you start up, come over here. I have something to offer. Would you like hope or despair? Well, of course you don't want despair. Well, let's, let's, see, let's talk hope. Would you like some hope? I've got a whole bag full of hope here. Let's have one. What would you like to hope for? Now, Elliot is going to teach us later on. Well, he already has in a way not to teach us to care, not to care. But he's going to teach us later on that at that point, any hope you have is hope for the wrong thing. But the devil of the stairs is going to say, hey, want some hope? I got a little hope. And so he says, sure, I'll go for that. And then the struggle begins, the hope and despair, because the other side of that hope that he's got is despair. It's just six months down the road or ten years down the road. So he says, whichever one of those you go for. So that's going on all the while. 
But the beauty of this is, at the, from the point of view of the second stair, what happens is, that struggle, you don't defeat the devil of the stair and then triumphantly march up to level two. That whole struggle becomes irrelevant. It's not as though it's over. You know what I mean? He looks down and he says, I see the same shape twisted on the banister, struggling with the devil of the stair. So one of the things he's announcing is that even though he's using the, the steps, the purgatorial climb, we shouldn't necessarily break this down into nice, neat little category, that then there's one and then another and then another and then another. We need that metaphor because that is the dominant metaphor. But Eliot is nuancing it by saying, don't think that the struggle that happened down there is over just because you're up here. It just takes place at a sort of irrelevant place in your being. It comes and you say, oh, well, there's that again. You recognize it, but it's not the core of your journey anymore. The subtlety of that is wonderful. At the second turning of the second stair, I left them twisting, turning below. At the first turning, he looks back and sees them. And at the second turning, he turns around and walks away. There were no more faces, and the stair was dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth driveling, beyond repair, or the toothed gullet of an aged shark. Well, he turns around, leaving that struggle behind him, and now there's no, there are no more faces. Now, the two things that happen simultaneously, no use to bring cause and effect into this thing, they just happen simultaneously. One is that there are no more faces, and the other is a sense that it's beyond repair. There were no more faces, and if you'll allow me to put it this way, and absent the faces, the stair was dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth, and the old man here, I think, is clearly the Pauline old man. The old man, the, the old Adam, see, the old Anthropos, the creature that, that is part of the old dispensation, the unconverted, untransformed, unregenerate old man. So it seemed like just the old man's mouth, guess what, driveling, now, Eliot is a poet, and he's, I think this, this little cluster of lines gives us a picture of the despair of the poet. Now, I said this morning that last week uh, I very intensely wanted to stop talking, uh, but didn't know how else to make a living. Uh, that's a minor version of what I feel in these lines. What's being described is a, is, a, is a moment when there are no more faces and the stare, the journey, the idea that there is a journey that's worth the effort is dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth driveling. In other words, the possibility of the stairs as a genuine religious journey is like an old man's mouth driveling. 
beyond repair. In a way, the wasteland could be seen by an Eliot at this point in his process as an old man's mouth driveling. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the wasteland's one of the great poems of all time. Uh, but if the poet has become interested now not so much in the diagnostic, but in the cure, he can look back on the diagnostic document and think, well, so what? It's the autopsy report. So what? If you think of the Puritan response to evil as being one which says we must negate it, the opposite of that is what I'm going to call, with your permission, the Catholic response, small c, in quotation marks, and whatever other devices you need to set that word off, the Catholic response is not to negate the evil, but to relate it. In other words, in the Catholic response, evil is evil not because of the impulse that it arose from is evil. Dante says, everything comes from love, all our sins and all our virtues. The sins are unrelated to the whole of the related cosmos. They are what the psychologists call autonomous complex. And they stubbornly refuse to be related, thank you. And the, the moralist response is to negate them, forbid them, rule them out of bounds, censure them, and accept these virtues over here. And the Catholic response is to redeem them is to relate them to the whole world. Dante's great image of the world is that it is it, the world hangs like a pendant from God so that all of us, whether we know it or not, are dependent. This is a dependent world. It's like a great chandelier. And the sins are those things that refuse to be part of that dependent cosmos and insist on being autonomous, independent of it. Uh, and so they run their own show the way an autonomous complex does in psychology. We think about it because Eliot is so stern. He is prophetic. I mean, if we think of the Protestant and Catholic tradition, one of the less valuable aspects of the Protestant tradition would be the, the Puritan approach. The best aspect of it is the prophetic, which calls attention to the situation, to the sinfulness, to the arrogance, the lust, the whatever else. The prophetic is the very best. And what I'm calling here Catholic is the very best of the Catholic. The worst of the Catholic is when it's totally indiscriminate and uh, pantheist and pagan, superstitious and in desperate need of the prophetic. But I'm using these terms, even though they're loaded terms, to say that Eliot sometimes is accused of being a kind of warmed-over Victorian because of his own temperament, which was he was a very reticent man temperamentally. Uh, but his poetry is not that. His poetry is Catholic, small c, in quotation marks, Catholic. That is to say, all of these things have to be not negated, but related. Back to Eliot for a second. Here comes some very sensuous poetry. At the first turning of the third stair was a slotted window bellied like the fig's fruit. So the image here is, the image I have in my mind is of one of those medieval towers and one's going up it, and uh, there on, on one landing is a, is a bay window, see? a slotted window, the way you'd have in one of those towers, a slotted window, but bellied like the fig's fruit. There's a sensuous image for you. 
bellied like the fig's fruit so that one could step out and get the panorama. And beyond the hawthorn blossom and a pasture scene, the broad-backed figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the Maytime with an antique flute. Now that's uh, probably, we would say automatically that's Pan, uh, but it's probably Priapus, who's a Pan-like figure, because part of what Eliot is trying to do is to re- or transform images that have already appeared in his poems. And in Mr. Apollonax, uh, Priapus appears, and the phrase is this. Uh, he looks onto this little uh, scene, and he says, I thought of Priapus in the shrubbery, gaping at the lady in the swing. And Priapus is this sort of potential rapist of a deity who is a pan-like figure. Uh, but when he first appears in Eliot's poetry, he is behind the shrubbery, gaping. But now, he's the broad-backed figure dressed in blue and green, enchanting the Maytime with an antique flute. So suddenly, at this purgatorial journey, this transformation journey, he, he gets to a place where, this is description of an emotional reality. He, is, he gets to a place where he is put in touch with a kind of emotional Eden. You can't leave that behind. This, this goes back to the idea of you have to forget it and then you have to remember it again. Forget it and remember it. He gets to the place on the third stair. Remember, the disaster of the second part of the second stair was that there were no more faces and it seemed like it was beyond repair. But in the first turning of the third stair, he sees this luscious, sensuous, pan-like nature, fertility, the fertility god out there playing the flute. And then the, these next line and a half are two of the most, I think, speaking as a male, maybe, as are the two of the most delicately sensuous lines uh, in modern English poetry. Blown hair is sweet. Brown hair over the mouth blown. Lilac and brown hair. One can clone the whole scene, uh, in a way, from that. Notice now, he is also redeeming his own past poetry. So there are a couple of things we have to go back to, and I'd like to uh, pursue them uh, with a little asides. First is something that Melvin Maddox said. Melvin Maddox used to write for the Christian Science Monitor. And uh, in a January 1987 article for the Monitor, he said this, Apropos of what I don't know, because I, this is the only thing I copied out. To look into the faces, to look into the eyes and smiles of the Madonnas of the 15th and 16th centuries is to feel something lacking in oneself. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? <laughs> to look into the faces, to look into the eyes and smiles of the Madonnas of the 15th and 16th centuries is to feel something lacking in oneself some extra passion, some special serenity, some unblinking and intense understanding of the life at its deepest reaches. Eliot had recognized that uh, sense of something lacking. And when he did The Portrait of a Lady early in his poetic work, there's that scene in there. The lady is talking to a younger man who is a would-be lover. Now that the lilacs are in bloom, she has a bowl of lilacs in her room, 
and twists one in her fingers while she talks. Ah, my friend, you do not know. You do not know what life is, you who hold it in your hands, parentheses, slowly twisting the lilac stalk. So Melvin Maddox says you look at the 15th and 16th century Madonnas and you feel something lacking in oneself. And Eliot pictures the, his portrait of a lady has this sudden, not that serenity and that depth, but a kind of nervous twisting. And the lilac stalk is the lilac is a is the is a kind of spring fertility sensuous all of the all of the innocent beauty of springtime and all of the rest of it slowly twisting the lilac stalk out of uh, nervousness and uncertainty and insecurity and anxiety and then at the beginning of the wasteland april is the cruelest month bleeding, breeding lilacs out of the dead land so now we, he, he's found that only when he gets to the third stair can he get up there and get a, you know, get the long view on lilacs again. You see, now he gets, in a sense, the perspective and he sees li- a lilac scene that is worthy of the lilac. Blown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. And before we go on to poem, one more aside. Under the conditions of an emotional shrinkage, which is what he was investigating in the wasteland and, and some of his other earlier poems, the lure of a of a emotional Garden of Eden was something that had to be rejected, because the uh, the response to it would have been too much in terms of the gimme gimme. And so, his description, I think, his the description of hell in the wasteland, or the description of the satanic or the the demonic in the wasteland, is. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings. And bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings. And the bats crawled head downward down a blackened wall and upside down in air were towers tolling reminiscent bells that kept the hours and voices singing in, an em- in empty cisterns and exhausted well. So it's an infernal image. But it's very sensuous. And at that point, the sensuous imagery has to be, it's, it evokes the gimme gimme too much. You have to walk away from it. But at the third, first turning of the third stair, he looks back and sees that he can now reconnoiter those emotions with some distance. Now, so he can forget them and remember them in a different way. And then he says, distraction. Because one has to redeem, reappropriate that emotion. And, the, of course, the, the great temptation there is to dive right out of the slotted window, see, right into that garden. Let me have it. But he says, no, distraction. Music of the flute stops and steps of the mind over the third stair. There's a great image of recalling, savoring, Gratitude, emotional thing, and moving on. Stops and steps. Stops in the sense that it arrests the journey for a moment, but steps in the sense that it provides new energy. Before, there were no faces, and the journey seemed beyond repair. So at that point, the powers that be say, we better let this chap take a look out the slotted window. He'll never make it. 
If he has to go one more turn without looking out the slotted window, he won't have enough energy. And then he says, fading, fading. Strength now, see, change, things have changed. New energetics, strength beyond hope and despair. See, now he's on number three. Way down there on number one is the devil trying to traffic in hope and despair. And now he's found, he's being put in touch with some emotional energies. Fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. Let me just share in that regard the uh, beginning of Purgatory, uh, the Canto 8 of the Purgatorio. The emotional complexity of these two tercets are so beautiful, I think, and I think they're apropos of the emotional tone that, of the poem at this point. Dante says, It was the hour that turns the memories of sailing men their first day out to home, and friends they sailed from on that morning's breeze, that thrills the traveler newly on his way, with love and yearning when he hears afar the bell that seems to mourn the dying day. It's as though a person is caught between two gravitational forces. And he draws energy from one, but knows in some way that he's going in the direction of the other, but feels both of them at the same time. And the, and the poignancy of that bittersweet moment is captured, I think, in these lines longs to go back, wants to jump out that slotted window, see? But then finally must climb the stairs. He hears the bell that seems to mourn the dying day, and for some strange reason he thrills. Now that's the, that is the emotional fact of the conversion experience. And I think both Dante and Eliot have masterfully captured it looking out the slotted window, and then moving on. Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. But speak the word only. That is from Matthew 8, where the centurion, the centurion has a sick child, and the centurion says to Jesus, uh, but you don't have to, you know, go to my house, you know, because I, I know what it's like to have authority, and you can just speak the word in the and my child will be healed. In a way, one can be healed at a distance. And here's Eliot on the third stair, see? and making a climb, but ending it with this, Lord, I am not worthy. The one to be healed is at some distance, but all you have to do is speak the word. So in a way, it's the perfect summation of this. But I think there's another... Uh, element of that, and that is that it is the prayer that's said in the Anglican and, and Roman Catholic traditions, uh, and others, I'm sure, uh, before the communion, before the Eucharist. Uh, in the Anglican and Roman traditions, the uh, Eucharist is held up, and the priest says, and the congregation says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. I think it is an explicit reference to, to Eliot's joining the Anglican Communion because Dante had said you can't continue this journey unless you eat of the bread of angels, unless you partake in the communion. And the communion means not only the eating of the bread but joining of the community. 
And I think it's a reference to, to joining the church, uh, particularly in light of what happens now in, in the fourth section of the poem. Section three of the poem ended with, Lord, I am not worthy, Lord, I am not worthy, but speak the word only, implying someone who is in, sick and in need of healing, but at some distance from the healer, and concerned to have that distance, the gap, closed. And the gap was closed by, uh, for Dante and for Eliot by the mysterious lady, the mediatrix. And it's really that presence that the f section four of the poem, I think, uh, is speaking of. Who walked between the violet and the violet, who walked between the various ranks of varied green, going in white and blue in Mary's color, talking of trivial things in ignorance and in knowledge of eternal dolor, who walked among the others as they walked, who then made strong the fountains and made fresh the springs, made cool the dry rock and made firm the sand in blue of larkspur, blue of Mary's color, Sylvania Vos. Here are the years that walk between, bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in the time between sleep and waking, wearing white light folded, sheathed about her folded. The New Year's walk, restoring through a bright cloud of tears the years, restoring with the new verse the ancient rhyme, redeem the time, redeem the unread vision in the higher dream, while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. The silent sister veiled in white and blue, between the yews, behind the garden god, whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed, but spoke no word. But the fountain sprang up, and the birds sang down, redeem the time, redeem the dream, the token of the word unheard, unspoken, till the wind shake a thousand whispers from the yew. And after this, our exile. Notice how often the word between is repeated in the first part of the poem. Who walked between the violet and the violet. Who walked between the various ranks of varied green. What's needed is a mediatrix or a mediator between these levels of reality. And uh, the illusion, the first illusion is to uh, who walked between the violet and the violet. The violet hour is when Tiresias can see. The violet hour is when the actual is in play with the imagination. And therefore, we can see it for what it really is. But there's another reference to the violet hour, and that is that one violet is the violet of the spring flowers in, in the garden the violet hour of springtime. And the other violet is the other springtime violet, which is the purple vestments of the Passion Liturgy. And what's needed is that those be related, that we find the mediatrix who can connect the flowering of spring with the resurrection. There's a passage in a Merton poem where he says, for like a grain of fire smoldering in the heart of every living essence, 
God plants his undivided power, buries his thought too vast for worlds in seed and root and blade and flower, until in the amazing light of April, surcharging the religious silence of the spring, creation finds the pressure of his everlasting secret too terrible to bear. And spring comes. The mediatrix must walk between the violets of spring and the violet of the Passion Week liturgy, who walked between the various ranks of varied green, the levels of life. Green is the color of life. Someone who can connect all of those levels of life, who walked between the various ranks of varied green, going in white and blue, in Mary's color. Mary is the quintessential mediatrix in the uh, Christian and particularly in the Catholic tradition. She is the one that provides the very mediation he's talking about. But so also does Beatrice for Dante. Talking of trivial things in ignorance and in knowledge of eternal dolor, who moved among the others as they walked. This is right out of Dante's La Vita Nuova. Dante says, how could it be that this source of divine love is walking around the streets of Florence gossiping with her teenage friend? He said, this is really remarkable. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the scandal of the incarnation all over again. You see, how could that be, he said. And in La Vita Nuova, he said, there she was, just walking around like she was an ordinary person talking about this stuff that these women were talking about. Talking of trivial things. There's another implication, of course. Trivial means where three roads meet. That's what the word means. It's the kind of talk that happens at the intersection where the three roads meet. And it's, but it's, I think, also a reference to the whole mystery of the Trinity, which it has at its, the heart of it, the mystery of the Incarnation. Uh, but it has to do with so one who is not only the mediatrix between the violet and the violet, but also the mediatrix between various uh, ranks of varied green, and then again the mediatrix where it brings, who uh, is at the place where three roads meet. All of this is a reference to the need for mediation. Who moved among the others as they walked, who then made strong the fountains and made fresh the spring. He had said in section one of the poem, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. But now he is discovering the mediatrix who makes strung the fountains and makes fresh the springs. Made cool the dry rock and made firm the sand. Now that's an interesting thing, you see, because this is, you, one doesn't necessarily leave the desert behind. As we said last week, the desert and the garden start to take on implications of each other. And uh, this mediatrix uh, doesn't eliminate the desert, uh, but makes it possible to experience it in another way. Uh, Simone Weil has a, a comment that's appropriate here. She says, That love which is the central core and intangible essence of joy is not a consolation. It leaves pain completely intact. In blue of larkspur, blue of Mary's color, Savania vos, that's the phrase, be mindful. Mandelbaum translated it, uh, remember, but probably best translated, be mindful. 
Here are the years that walk between, between an early emotional experience and one's present moment. Here are the years that walk between bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring, and now the word that's repeated over and over is the word restore. Bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, see the, the broad back figure dressed in blue and green, the pan or primus figure. Bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in the time between sleep and waking, wearing white light folded, sheathed about her folded. Uh, let me go back, uh, do these one at a time. Bearing away fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in time. Eliot wrote a, an essay on Yeats's later poetry, and he said this about it. One feels that the most lively and desirable emotions of youth have been preserved to receive their full and due expression in retrospect. For the interesting feelings of age are not just different feelings, they are feelings into which the feelings of youth are integrated. It says, bearing away the fiddles and the flutes, restoring one who moves in the time between sleep and waking, wearing white light folded. This is a, a recapturing of all of those emotions in terms of a deeper understanding of their meaning. This is a poem called Long Knife's Daughter, partly a pun on the fact that uh, it's a poem about sitting on a bench where people have carved their initials into the bench, you know, the so-and-so plus so-and-so kind of thing. But it, it, it takes its title from uh, John Nyhart's Song of Three Friends, and I went to it and jotted down these lines. Uh, Long Knife's daughter is a is a uh, Indian woman, beautiful Indian woman. The two two men fall in love with, and they eventually one of them kills the other one over her. Uh, but that's not what this poem about. But I'll read to you. This is John Nyhart. But when twilight when the twilight came, there fell on him a sentimental, reminiscent mood, as though upon some frozen solitude within him breathed a, a softening chinook, far strayed across the Alp-like years that look on what one used to be and what one is. And when he raised that mellow voice of his in songs of lovers wedded to regret, tis said that unashamed men's eyes grew wet, so poignant old memories were stirred. Well, that has to do with Long Night Star. This is, that's the title of the poem. Unlike the church's finished oaken pews, whose pencil marks can be often gotten off by buffing with a moistened handkerchief, this park bench's legs haven't yet the roots, nor its seat and seat back sap or bark enough to amend these crude initials with. As one who crossed the nave down the aisle and felt earth warm to firmly planted feet, I'll stop to loan my living weight a while that I might give the wood a hint of body heat, that my head might lend the bench back's upper board rememberings of young vine, fast and green, that clung and clung and covered everything until the pocket knife was just a routine sore, neither urgent prayer nor the urge imagining. Sometime I root the bench in its own ground and forget the name the other letters meant. Instead of which, I then remember this, the voice that bid me leave and where I came. But sometimes it's the other way around. I tangle in the very vines I'd lent, swaying to an old rock dithyram. A dithyram is a Dionysian frenzied song. 
swaying to an old rock dithyram until all I can remember is a kiss, the crude first initials of my name, and the penknife I've learned to do this with. Well, I don't know, maybe it doesn't fly compared to Ellie's portrait, but it reminded me of redeeming the time. Redeeming the time by bringing back into play all of those now suspect emotions. White light folded comes from Dante's, one of the most marvelous images in, in the Paradiso, where he says, I can't describe what's going on here, folks, because the folds of heaven's draperies are too bright. It's a mar- wonderful painterly image, which means you, which is that you can't paint the draperies unless the folded part is darker than the part outside, see? unless there's some shadows, unless there's some shadings. Dante says in heaven there are just not enough shadings for it. For, the, for you to be able to make a picture out of it. So there's, I think that's the reference here. Wearing white light, folded, sheathed about her, folded. It's an incarnational image. The New Year's walk, restoring, through a bright cloud of tears, the years. And before we go on, uh, it's a reference, I think, to Dante's in La Vita Nuova, Dante writes a poem in which he says, if I may just go to the heart of the poem, he says, there is a new what, intelligenza nuova, a new, lo, a new uh, intelligence that comes, ab- that, is, that comes about because of a weeping heart. Now, the way we would translate that in the modern language would be to say, a broken heart produces new consciousness. We can attribute that discovery to Dante. Now, other people have discovered it. But Dante wrote what amounts to the E equals MC square of it. So we might as well attribute it to him. A broken heart produces new consciousness. Restoring through a bright cloud of tears the years. That is to say, his, his own past restores the past. Restoring with a new verse the ancient rhyme which is what he's about, restoring with a new verse the ancient rhyme. It's also referenced to Dante because Dante tried to restore with a new verse the ancient rhyme. Dante's poetry was called the sweet new style. And he was trying to restore the ancient rhyme. The ancient rhyme was the rhyme of Virgil. And he restored it not only with a new literary energy, but with a new understanding. At the heart of Virgil's great poem, the Aeneid, is the, is the understanding that you can only accomplish the great historical task by leaving Dido at Carthage. And Dante came to understand that the great historical task was Beatrice. <laughs> that only by going, that only by pursuing the love awakened by the mediatrix could one accomplish the great task. So there's, I think, in a way, a reference to all of that here. Restoring with a new verse the ancient rhyme. And this is what it all comes down to, finally. Redeem the time. Redeem the temporal order. That's what that means. Redeem the temporal order. Redeem the time. This time, the past time, the future time, Redeem the time, redeem the unread vision in the higher dream. The higher dream 
was, is what Eliot describes uh, what happens at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, what's called the pageant of the church, the griffin pulling, a, pulling the, uh, the chariot of the church and the 24 elders and that whole elaborate pageant at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain is what Eliot calls the higher dream. He says we in the modern world only have appetite for lower dreams. We don't, we don't understand this stuff anymore. And so now Poem is saying you must redeem the time, redeem the unread vision in the higher dream. While jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. Now he's just referred to the higher dream. The higher dream was the griffin, who is the Christ figure, drawing the chariot of the church, corrupt as it was. But notice what Eliot has done. Redeem the unread vision in the higher dream while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. I think that's a commentary on the betrayal in which he himself feels he may have participated by, uh, by the poetry of his time. Jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. It is not the, it is not the chariot. It's simply a gilded hearse. Now, this could be a comment on the wasteland. I think jeweled unicorns refer to poetic genius, a drawing what amounts to a gilded hearse. It, it may just simply be a comment on the way things stand. The best we can do is to produce a very elaborate and very brilliant autopsy, which is what he did in The Wasteland. The, the voice here is saying, we must do better than that. We must redeem the unread vision in the higher dream. And that means to articulate the pageant of the church in such a way that it becomes a pageant once again, which Eliot did shortly hereafter in a pageant that he helped produce called The Rock which was literally the pageant of the church, the building of the church. The silent sister, and we're, we're still talking about the mediatrix. The silent sister, veiled in white and blue, between the yews. Now, the yew trees in classical uh, literature, the yew trees are, stand to either side of the, the, the path that leads from the world of the living to the world of the dead, the path that leads into Hades. Is, uh, is marked on either side by, the, by a yew tree. And the yew tree came to be a symbol of the church because it stood at the threshold, so to speak, between this life and the next life and helped to negotiate it. You see, so in some way it became a symbol of the church. The silent sister veiled in blue and white between the yews. So again, it's a kind of Mary figure, a Beatrice figure, a, a figure of the mediatrix between the two worlds. Behind the garden god, Priapus again, whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed but spoke no word. Let me read that again. The silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews, behind the garden god, whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed but spoke no word. Now this is an example of how to redeem the time. The garden god is in the foreground. In the background is the silent sister between the yews. And the garden god's flute is now breathless, which is a sort of double meaning. 
is fluted, breathless in the sense that it causes breathlessness, it causes a kind of panting. You say he's a, he's a pan god. But also breathless because the spirit is out of it now. And it is now being incorporated into a larger cosmos. And so, this is how you redeem the world. You see, you baptize it and bring it into the bigger cosmos. So, between the use, behind the garden god, whose flute is breathless, the silent sister bent her head and signed the sign of the cross, but spoke no word. Now, that is how you redeem the time, redeem the temporal order. You don't tell the garden god to get the hell out of here, this is church. You simply notice the bigger environment. And you notice that the silent sister is back there bowing her head and signing but speaking no word. And the whole thing is incorporated. Now it is related. Now the garden god has a place in the, in the larger picture. So, feel what happens here. The silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews, behind the garden god, whose flute is breathless, bent her head and signed, but spoke no word. But the fountain sprang up and the birds sang down, redeem the time, redeem the dream, the token of the word unheard, unspoken, till the wind shake a thousand whispers from the you. And after this, our exile. I just think that is such a marvelous image of how it is redeemed. It's suddenly seen in its larger context and validated as related to that larger world. Nothing gets closed out. He has to, you have to walk away from Priapus. And when Priapus is in the shrubbery gaping at the lady in the swing, has to be condemned. When he looks out and sees Priapus, the broad-backed figure dressed in blue and green, he has to turn and walk back up those stairs, see? But all of that is part of what finally leads to this, which is an understanding of the world in which Priapus too has a place. Redeem the time, see? Redeem the dream, the, the token of the word unheard, unspoken. Until, see, till the wind, the panuma, the spirit, shakes a thousand whispers from the yew tree. Remember the yew tree? It's the image of the church. What to do in the meantime? All of this is what has to happen now. Eventually, the spirit will move through the church and shake a thousand whispers from the yew tree. But in the meantime, we must redeem the time and redeem the dream. And the last thing is, and after this, our exile, which we tend to read with a comma in there, after this, comma, our exile, but it's not that way. It comes from the Salve Regina prayer, which is a prayer in the both Anglican and Roman communions, which goes like this. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, 
And after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. After this our exile, you see. This is our exile. And after this, now show us. So the mediatrix is also the mediatrix between us and Christ. So the poem now asks the question that Protestants rightly ask of the Catholic tradition, which is, well, that's fine, but where in all of that is Christ? And after this, our exile, the mediatrix, the purpose of the mediatrix is to get us, is to link earthly life to the Christ. See, what he finds is there, one needs that linkage. And it was what the lady did for, Beat, for Dante, what Beatrice did for Dante, and what this mysterious lady figure does for Eliot. But then it comes to the next question, which is, show unto us the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And the next part of the poem will begin to, will begin to uh, meditate on that, which is really a meditation on the prologue to the Gospel of John. May I just read, in closing, read a short poem by Wallace Stevens, which is a commentary on all this, the apostrophe to Vincentine, which is, has to do with the mediatrix. I figured you as nude between monotonous earth and dark blue sky. It made you seem so small and lean and nameless, heavenly Vincentine. I saw you then as warm flesh, brunette and yet not too brunette. This is, I don't know where he, whether he'd been reading Eliot or not, but you see, Eliot says there's the, the woman with the long black hair fiddles whisper music on his strings, but it's the, it's the brown hair over the mouth blown. Well, I saw you then as warm flesh, brunette, but yet not too brunette, as warm, as clean, your dress was green, was whited green, green Vincentine. See, white and green, heaven and earth. Then you came walking in a group of human others, voluble. La Vita Nova, right? There she is, walking around Florence. Yes, you came walking, Vincentine. Yes, you came talking. And what I knew you felt came then. Monotonous earth I saw become illimitable spheres of you. This is like the cereal aisle, right? Are we talking about this? Monotonous earth I saw become illimitable spheres of you. And that white animal, so lean, turned Vincentine, turned heavenly Vincentine. And that white animal, so lean, turned heavenly, heavenly Vincentine.